from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. There are more than 10,000 spies in Washington. Unprecedented. The threat from our foreign adversary, specifically China, on the economic espionage on the espionage front. Who are they? What are they after? Brian Dugan, Assistant Special Agent in Charge of Counterintelligence at the FBI's Washington Field Office, joins us on this episode to put the problem into context, explain who's behind it, and where the FBI is going to solve it. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. U.S. intelligence officials believe there are thousands of spies lurking in Washington. Some say as many or more than 10,000. And many of them are operating in plain sight in what we call the City of Secrets. Every day. In the pre-dawn hours, the quiet rumble of transit begins deep beneath the city, in the streets, on its waterways, and in the skies. Hour by hour, it grows as this city of 700,000 swells to more than a million. Waves of civil servants, military, law enforcement officers, business people, students and diplomats, and tourists saturate the city. Among them, spies, and a lot of them. Unprecedented. The threat from our foreign adversary, specifically China, on the economic espionage on the espionage front. Brian Dugan, Assistant Special Agent in Charge of Counterintelligence at the Washington Field Office of the FBI. There's a lot of activity in the D.C. area and our current climate. There's a lot of people interested in finding out what the U.S. government is up to. That's not the only reason. There's also one of the biggest workforce turnovers in the history of this nation. There's a large population right now in retirement or getting close to retirement. The baby boomers that were in U.S. government are all leaving, and that population is also looking for post-government jobs. And according to Philip Mudd, former deputy director of the FBI's National Security Division, they know things. People with high-end security clearances at the State Department, the CIA, the FBI, the Department of Defense, and contractors in Washington. They number, according to Mudd, in the tens of thousands. And if you do the numbers... In that numbers game, I just think of the insider threat here, and you got to know that at any one time, someone has given it up for money or some other reason and just got to hope that the counterintelligence guys figure it out. And according to Dugan, they pretty much have, and they're taking action. Working with our federal partners to make the awareness out there for those that are getting ready to retire that we provided some really good training to you. We provided really good access for you, but this is not for sale. And for those who reject, miss, or ignore the message. Of course, there's always going to be moments that we're going to have people decide to cooperate with the enemy. And we're going to find them. We're going to catch them. And now we get down to the conversation with Brian Dugan on Washington's spy problem and what the FBI is doing about it. Why is Washington such an important target? 
Well, I mean, Washington is, one, the seat of government. Uh, we have all of our um, uh, foreign partners uh, all here at the embassies. We also have um, a large number of retired government employees that are retiring out of the government here. We also have headquarters of our partner federal agencies um, centered around the capital district, uh, as well as a lot of um, contracting uh, companies and their subcontractors that are also headquartered in the D.C. area, all working on classified uh, projects that are all vulnerabilities for the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. So would you just give us a brief overview about the uh, counterintelligence, counterintelligence division here at uh, the Washington Field Office and uh, what your mission is and your objectives are? Okay. So our counterintelligence division is one of the larger ones in, in the FBI. Uh, we uh, concentrate on monitoring our foreign adversaries to make sure that the playing field is level uh, between our um, U.S policy and um, uh, objectives and to also ensure that our um, companies and U.S. economy is playing a level of field uh, in regard to economic espionage as well as to ensure that those that are working in the classified environment are um, secure, that classified information is uh, not being provided to the foreign adversary or uh, foreign counterparts that don't have a need to know. Um, and it's a full-time business. There's a lot of activity in the D.C. area, and in our current climate, um, there's a lot of um, uh, people interested in finding out what the U.S. government is up to, uh, what technologies our companies, our universities, our uh, foreign, uh, or excuse me, our uh, federal partners are working on uh, that give the U.S. the edge, the leadership in the world. And our job is to keep an eye on that to make sure that uh, nothing, uh, nothing escapes um, the confines of our interests. Mm -hmm. Two things I'd like to follow up on. Uh, the first one being, you said it's important to keep a level playing field when it comes to foreign intelligence organizations, I guess. How do you do that? Well, the intelligence game is something that obviously, you know, all countries are involved in. Um, and we're basically the defense. We're the defensive uh, agency here to make sure that the uh, intelligence uh, games by our adversaries, uh, we keep them in check. We catch them in their craft. We catch them in trying to recruit uh, people in the United States. And also if they're trying to recruit people outside the United States uh, that are uh, willing or uh, possibly able to provide uh, an advantage to our foreign adversary. And so that, that's a full-time job, and we've had some recent successes um, in that game. Could you give us a sense of some of those successes? So more recently, uh, Kevin Mallory uh, was finally uh, fully adjudicated, uh, was featured on 60 Minutes. It's an example of the large population of retired uh, U.S. government employees that have had either uh, past clearances current clearances in retirement, or even just U.S. government employees that have information that our foreign adversaries would like to have. 
Mr. Mallory decided that five years after retirement, he needed to make extra money. And he made his services available to the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, we caught him. He was convicted of espionage and ultimately sentenced. Um, the Kevin Mallory situation, how long did it take to work that out, to, to, to get to the bottom of that? It was actually relatively a short case. Usually espionage cases take years. But in that uh, t- specific case, it took months, where between the time of recognizing something was going foul to catching uh, him in the act, uh, catching uh, his conversations on his uh, phone with his handler, uh, were actually done in months. Uh, it made it hard in the case to prove the transmission of classified material, uh, but ultimately we were successful in showing that he was cooperating with the Chinese. Do you think that was unusual, the fact that that was such a short case, based on what you were saying about cases, or is each case, you know, unique? Each case is unique. Um, but certainly um, the Mallory case uh, was unique in itself that things were so fast moving uh, with technology and the speed of the recruitment and the people that are willing to talk to our foreign adversary uh, um, handlers. Uh, we're, we're having to speed things up. Mm-hmm. Um, gone are the days of meeting uh, handlers uh, once in a while where we have Mallory talking on a regular basis with his handler electronically and what he thought was going to be hidden conversations, um, we were able to catch that and move on that quicker. You said that there was a lot of activity here in this area. How do you gauge that? How do you tell that? What gives you that impression? Well, one thing that uh, uh, has not just piqued our interest but brought brought to our attention a lot more in the last um, 10 years or so, is as, as America has been talking about, there's a large population right now in retirement or getting close to retirement. And the baby boomers are, you know, that were in U.S. government are all leaving. And those, uh, that population is also looking for post-government jobs. And they've been provided uh, good training. Uh, they've been provided uh, good access to information. Uh, So they have a lot of information. Even if they don't have copies of stuff they had from work like Mr. Mallory, they still have stuff up in their heads that is something that the Chinese, the Russians, or others may be interested in having. Even if it's as innocuous as just how the U.S. government operates or how the government uh, views another country is something that the intelligence services that are coming against the United States would be interested in having. And so all those... People and we're getting the word out, and we're working with our federal partners to make the awareness out there for those that are getting ready to retire. That we provided some really good training to you. We were provided really good access for you, um, but this is not for sale. And that's some of the lessons. Hopefully, we're coming out with uh, with the Mallory resolution, and now we've got uh, Jerry Lee, another former intelligence uh, community member that. Uh, has pled guilty to his crimes working with the Chinese. That's pretty remarkable what you mentioned, that the adversaries are looking at the demographics here, the population age thing, and figuring and working that out, saying, hey, there is this many people or that many people that are going to be 57 or whatever the, the, the age is and are going to be looking for work and maybe we can sweeten the pot for them. That's pretty remarkable if they're thinking that way. Well, I think, you know, social media has made it easier for them to find. Um, you, know, you can look on any 
you know, LinkedIn is one example, but any social media uh, employment uh, search um, facilitating mechanism on social media, uh, people put out there, uh, if not what they did in a prior life, what skills they have. And to any good intelligence service, those are going to be clues to find people that used to have a government job or uh, access to a clearance at one time or another. And so that just makes it more out there. Obviously, that's something that if uh, an American is retired and they're trying to find a job that correlates to what they've been working on, headhunters out there may be legitimately looking for people with those backgrounds. But our adversary is also using that as a means to look for and recruit potential people to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Could you characterize, and I know you've talked a little bit about the activity. You just got done talking about the, the, the kind of activity we're, we're seeing here. But could you characterize the threat now, severe, moderate, mild, comparatively speaking to, to recent years? Well, I think in the 60 Minutes interviews, I think you couldn't say it any better than Assistant Attorney General Demers and then Mr. Evanita, uh, where they basically both said that it's unprecedented, unprecedented uh, the, the threat from our foreign adversary, specifically China, on the economic espionage on the espionage front, that there is uh, such a desire for our foreign adversaries to gain access to classified information, to U.S. government intentions. And I think the large population is not something that's being calculated by our foreign intelligence service uh, adversaries, but I think it's just a, uh, um, a vulnerability that we in the U.S. government have that we're aware of, and it's just their luck that it's becoming available. Mm-hmm. A couple of, uh, well, your former uh, assistant director here told me some months ago, and another national security official just this week confirmed it to me, that um, um, China has been really active, obviously, and they indic- they suggested that the U.S. may have some work to do to catch up to them, to 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 in- to, to get ahead of the threat. So, how would you characterize? What needs to be done or what is being done to deal with that significant threat that you just outlined from the Chinese? Certainly. As Mr. Demers had laid out in some of his testimony in the last year, um, we're getting uh, working groups together that will go across government uh, agencies to make sure that, one, uh, the outreach to not only our federal partners about the um, internal risk and the retire, retiree risk, but also to our corporate partners to uh, educate on the risk that the um, enemy is looking for any and all opportunities to collect information about the U.S. government, the U.S. intelligence community, and uh, U.S. government, or excuse me, U.S. company secrets and advantage R&D technology and our academic sector. So we are uh, in full Uh, We're in a full court press with outreach uh, uh, to get the education out there. And the audience is um, uh, open to listening about this more and more these days because they see the the transfer of uh, uh, technology, the transfer of information, uh, and companies are seeing their bottom line slip because 
it used to be we wanted to have uh, openings into the market, and the Chinese uh, government controls their own economy, whereas the United States is the economy is on its own and the government's on its own, and there's a separation for good reason. Um, but we don't have spies, as Mr. Demers said, stealing secrets from other foreign companies to give to a Google. Uh, Google has to do their their own thing. Um, but in China, the Communist Party is going to support their own companies. And so this is not just a FBI versus the Chinese government. This is a whole of government, a whole of the United States to work together to protect our own bottom line, our own interests, and our own secrets. Can spies slip through in here in, in Washington? Because you guys are, cover this place like a blanket, and you're, but you're very busy. I mean, there's a lot going on. Can they slip through? Of course, there's always going to be moments that we're going to have people uh, decide to cooperate with the enemy. And we're going to find them. We're going to catch them. Um, like I said, it's just not the FBI. It's not just the U.S. government keeping an eye out uh, in the watchtower. It is everybody involved that we get our uh, contract, uh, defense contractors on the lookout. Uh, we have their subcontractors that work with them on the lookout. Um, we have uh, active engagement with uh, multiple fronts in the private sector, uh, academic sector. So it's not just one agency or just one government that's doing this. We are all doing it in partnership um, to make sure that we don't let things slip by. You know, it's really interesting here getting back to Washington, you know, it's a city of 700,000 people, I think. And recently, I think it was the Spy Museum, had an advertisement that said that there are 10,000 spies here, which means that there's one in every 70 people could be a spy, which, you know, that's, that, it is what it is. But for the average Joe or Susie, what does a spy look like? A, a spy, you know, is nondescript. A spy is, is going to be someone that's going to be a student in school, a visiting professor, um, your neighbor, someone that uh, uh, could be a colleague, um, or someone that uh, shares the soccer field with you. Um, there's uh, um, ample evidence that uh, our foreign adversary is coming at us in person and over the Internet. And uh, we all have to be watchful. Um, I can't put a number on how many spies are amongst us right now, um, but uh, we're always vig vigilant. And the good thing is that uh, even our local partners working with local, state, tribal uh, police, they understand the counterintelligence mission as well. And so we're, we're all looking out for who's the next spy. Mm -hmm. um, the question... Uh, about what they do or how they do what they do is is, is very interesting. Uh, how, how's, how's the trade craft changed? I know you've spoken a little bit about LinkedIn and social media and mm -hmm. stuff, you know, remote stuff, but, you know, people on the ground. One thing that some years ago that was pointed out is that 
you know, the non-conventional way of going after this. Some some nation states are doing that now instead of, you know, government people. They're getting, as you mentioned, different people from different disciplines to come here to do things like business people and students. Mm -hmm. So how's the tradecraft changed? Well, I mean, the tradecraft is still building relationships, uh, no matter uh, who it is. Um, it's based off of building trust and getting people to talk and share. And so it's not just a person in the sunglasses and dark hat and the trench coat. Um, so uh, our adversary is becoming better at uh, co-opting uh, people in all walks of life um, for either reasons of uh, threat or financial gain. Um, there are uh, people here in the United States that are looking to find out what the United States is doing, what we're about, and they're going to collect that and provide that back to their handlers. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a benefit in the United States that we're open, and so that's always going to have a vulnerability for us, but that's why the FBI, our federal partners, and all the people that we have great relationships with will be watching for to make sure that while we have an open society, that we also keep an eye on, uh, or keep an eye out for uh, those people that have nefarious purposes here. How long have you been involved in counterintelligence? I've been in involved in counterintelligence about half of my career, both here on here and on the West Coast. So it's my understanding that FBI agents usually have a previous career before coming into the FBI. Was that the case with you? An intelligence career? No, just a previous job, you know, before coming to the FBI. So FBI agents have to have work experience before they can sign up. You don't, you can't come into the FBI straight out of college. Um, so we have police officers, we have lawyers, we have Marines like myself. Um, we have people that had been FBI employees either as analysts or else uh, in the FBI, and they try out for agent, and they had that work experience wherever they came from. Um, but the, the FBI is getting younger, and we have younger and younger agents starting to work counterintelligence. Um, but they're learning fast, and they're going fast. Mm -hmm. And I'm really proud of our organization able to train up and develop uh, these young investigators to do things that um, older generations used to do, and they're doing a great job. So the reason I asked you that question, I wanted to know if there is anything that strikes you or a moment in your career when it comes to, to counterintelligence that you kind of sit back and think, wow, that was great. We did great work. Is there a, a case that's more memorable to you than any other or any that strikes you as something that you just remember? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of victories. There's a lot of ongoing victories um, that I don't know if I can even talk about right now. I mean, that's the neat thing about counterintelligence is there's things that go on with us and our government partners that we are we are stopping the counterintelligence threat and not all the time does it show up in court. And I'm really proud of what our folks are doing. As Mr. Demir said in his testimony, we're partnering up with other uh, federal agencies like Treasury where we're using uh, financial means to stop um, the enemy from stealing technology because we're not going to be able to arrest them. We're not going to be able to stop 
uh, them from getting technology. So then we we hit them in the pocketbook. Mm-hmm. So what haven't I asked you about that you think is important? The one thing that I think when I was thinking about talking to you today is is the not just outreach to the private sector, but our work with our federal partners to better train them uh, and better open up the bridge for communication to identify those insider threats earlier and more often. Um, It's not for any one of our agencies, and even the FBI is included, uh, it's not a a black mark that you have someone that's doing bad things in in your agency or your department. It's more important to identify them and out them and get them out of the access they have currently. And I think uh, some of the work that our headquarters, um, insider threat, and espionage people have been doing have been preparing our federal partners for the event of there's going to be a bad apple, but this is how you can identify them. This is how you can refer them to us so we can jointly look at them and make sure we don't let any more secrets go and stop the, the, the leak from continuing. And how would you... How would you characterize the reception you're getting from these places and people and organizations that you're going to to try to try to teach them up about this? Very receptive. I think our partners, so in each federal agency, um, we have uh, um, equal um, personnel that are working inside a threat for each of the federal agencies, especially in the intelligence community, that we can reach to and they understand that their mission is to look for the insider threat and that they can contact us anytime. I think that is uh, 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 mutually beneficial for everybody and it is uh, um, well received and it's, uh, it's not a black mark on the agency to identify them and we get to them and get to them quickly and we take care of the issue as fast as we can. The city of Washington itself, uh, it's a very unique city. Um, it is very diverse. Mm-hmm. There are lots of different neighborhoods, lots of different places where people who are engaged in and involved in international espionage can hide. You know, you have diplomats who live all over the place, mm-hmm. uh, not just in the city. So um, how do you how do you view that? How do you manage the those possibilities? Or is that something you simply rely on your partnerships for to deal with that kind of thing? Well, I mean, that's the advantage about living in the United States is that there is that freedom of movement, freedom to live wherever you want. In a lot of ways, that's our advantage to the... When we talk to the adversary, they see the lifestyle and the living conditions. So as much as that makes our job harder in some ways, it also is to our advantage. And so that there is different communities different ethnicities, different cultures throughout the city in the greater D.C. area, including in Maryland and into Virginia, um, that also is our advantage. And so in a lot of ways, uh, that helps us. And, yes, it makes our job, uh, um, we have to open up the optic to keep an eye on out there, Um, but we have really good people in the organization, good people that can speak multiple languages, can understand different cultures, and work with all these different entities and communities throughout the greater D.C. area to help uh, uh, look for nefarious actors and then bring them to our attention. The odd nature of recruitment sometimes may escape people, but you you have some thoughts about how people should view some of those developments. Well, as as I mentioned, 
part of our outreach and, and training to um, people outside the FBI, to our federal partners, to the private sector, is that um, the collectors for an, for an intelligence service uh, will try to befriend you. They're going to try to lure you into a relationship, um, but they're going to start asking odd questions. And those questions at the beginning will seem innocuous, maybe even flattering, um, but they're going to get to the point where they're going to try to get the information that they're looking for. And, you know, the, the social engineering, the social work that a good handler is going to do is to ingratiate themselves to their person they're trying to recruit. And uh, we're trying to make people aware um, for those that are unwitting or not aware of the process that that over eagerness to socialize with you may not be just because you're a swell person it may be because of the information that you know or have access to and to be wary of that social interaction but also those questions that may be coming shortly after well, sir, that's a that's a great uh, opportunity to talk to you today. It's been uh, a pleasure to listen and learn, and I thank you for taking time to do this. Thank you for your time. That was Brian Dugan, Assistant Special Agent in Charge of Counterintelligence at the Washington Field Office of the FBI. This interview was for a series of reports that we called City of Secrets, and you can read all about it online at WTOP.com. That's Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. And you can also listen to the individual radio reports right there at WTOP. When you go there, just search national security. And coming up in our next episode, a woman that I describe as tough, smart, and funny. Her name, Elizabeth Horst. She's the Charge d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Tallinn, Estonia. And she's got a great story to tell. As the Charge I am in charge of the running of the embassy. I spend a good portion of the day working on the policy that we work on with the Estonians. And our primary goals here are um, security, economic development, and people-to-people relationships. And she's had plenty of experiences in people-to-people relationships in some of the toughest postings in the world, including Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Moscow. So don't miss it. And with that... Thank you, as always, for joining us. If you have any questions or comments, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's, again, whiskeytangooscarpapa.com, W-T-O-P. And you can follow us on Twitter at T-U-S-A Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast, at T-U-S-A Podcast. And check out our new national security newsletter called Inside the Skiff at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, everybody. You have to check out this amazing new true crime podcast. It's called 22 Hours, an American Nightmare. It's about a murder that took place in Washington. A family and their housekeeper were held hostage for 19 hours before being killed when the murderer set their mansion on fire. And you'll be shocked by what they went through during those 19 hours. And you won't believe how they found the guy. I won't ruin the ending, but all I will say is pizza crust. 
Podcast One teamed up with my fellow award-winning journalist at WTOP, Megan Cloherty, and Jack Moore to put this story together. Download 22 Hours, An American Nightmare, on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. New episodes every Monday. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.